Well, open up your Bibles this morning to John chapter 17. We are back in uh, our study through the Gospel of John. Uh, Last week we had a big celebration, so thank you everyone that came out. And we are celebrating 14 years of God's blessing on our church. So that was was a great time. But we're going to get back into our series in the Gospel of John and actually look at the prayer of Jesus. And this is part two. A couple weeks ago, we started part one, and now we're going to look at Jesus praying specifically for his 11 apostles. You're like, well, I thought there were 12. Well, he wasn't praying for that guy, but we'll see. We'll see that in a moment, but let's, uh, let's pray for our time in God's word. Let's pray. Lord God, we uh, just uh, thank you for the awesome time in worship as we get to go before you and get it, the privilege to bow down before you and praise you for all the great things you have done, for who you are, and all the great things that you will do as promised in the word of God. And this morning, Lord, as we look at the prayer of your son, Jesus Christ, as he prayed for his apostles, I pray, Lord God, that we would also see that in those prayers, there's much application for us as well. And Lord God, your scripture says that Jesus continues to intercede on the behalf of his children. So we ask that you would bless our time in your word. Show us, Lord God, how to glorify you more in our lives. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, we'll open up your Bibles again to John 17, starting in verse 6. Um, before I get into that, you know, I coach uh, my son's soccer team. It's a... Uh, they're 10 and under, and they're at that age, if your children have ever played soccer, you've ever watched children play soccer, where they, it's just like a big snake, they all follow the ball, uh, but the age that I coach now is they're starting to understand a little bit to not follow the ball so much, so it's not like a big, it's not like a swarm of bees or whatever going all over the place. It's very important that they stay in their area of the field, and so a lot of times in our, well, I'll, every practice, I'm always reinforcing that to them hey your your position is you know striker or you're on the wing so you need to stay over here you know you're set I'm going to set you right here and sometimes I have to like physically in a nice way move the little kid over okay you're right here you stay right here don't move I promise you it's going to be good because you know they have a tendency to want to get the ball they don't understand that hey somebody might pass it or somebody might kick it this way and if the ball comes and everybody's over there. You're going to be all alone and score a goal. So it's very important that you stay where I set you. You know, it, it benefits you and it benefit, benefits the entire team. Instead of you trying to run all over the place and get out of position and be somewhere where you're not supposed to be. And so that's always a, a struggle to get them to stay in, in their area. And it's not unlike us in the church or us as believers, or even people in the world, as you'll see as we go through the study this morning, you'll see that God has set apart certain people and set them in certain places. And then we get in trouble when we go out of the place that God has set us. And we're missing out on so much. And in a a much broader area, a broader way I should say, the church in general is missing out because you're not staying where you're supposed to be or where God has called you to be. So I pray you see that this morning as we go through the text. So with that said, let's read what Jesus says. And this is part two because two weeks ago we, we studied verses one through five. 
where Jesus prayed for himself. And now he's going to pray for his disciples. And then next week, we'll see Jesus' prayer part three, where he prays for the church universal, which includes you and me specifically. So with that said, let's look at the prayer of Jesus. And scripture says this, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. So this is Jesus praying to the Father. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you and for the words which you gave me I have given to them and they received them and truly understand that I come forth from you. And they believe that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, that the name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. And that's, I mentioned earlier, the 11. Judas has already betrayed Christ in his heart and has left the room where they are praying. So Jesus is like, I didn't guard him because it was foreordained that he would leave. Verse 13, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have joy, excuse me, so they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. And we'll stop right there. So here again, we have Jesus praying for his 11 disciples. And so let's go back and look at this prayer. And let's look, first of all, at the very beginning where it talks us, tells us who Jesus is praying for, and he describes the disciples and why he's praying for them. And it says this in verse 6, that Jesus has been teaching them. So God has given the disciples to Jesus, God the Father. He's given them to the Son, and Jesus has been teaching them. He says that he's manifested the Father's name to them. But what does that mean, that he's manifested the Father's name to them? Well, the name of God, if you think about it, whenever they say the name of God, it's more than just a name. It's used usually in Scripture as a description of his character, his nature, and his attributes. You remember when Moses was uh, in the desert and he was given by God a command to go back into Egypt and, and to speak to before that and also to speak to his nation, Israel. And Moses says, well, who do I tell them? that sent me to do this. Remember what God says. He says, I am who I am. Tell them, I am sent me. It was just a name. It was a description. Like, I am the self-existing one. 
his name in itself just describes everything about him. In, in, in a lot of the Psalms, there's things that said about God that just says his name, but it describes who he is. For example, uh, one of the Psalms says, some boast in chariots, some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. So it's an attribute, it's a character, it's a description of him, his nature. We're boasting in his name because his name is just pregnant with meaning. Or you might remember the worship song that also came from a psalm that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are saved. Does anybody remember that worship song? Like back in, thank you. If you're like a Christian from the late 80s, early 90s, you know, the old school worship, if there could be such a thing. Psalmist also says, how majestic is your name, O Lord. Or they also say, we give thanks to the God, we give, we give thanks to your name, because your name is near. Again, the, the name of the Lord is more than just a title. It's his attributes, it's his character, it's his nature. I tried to think of, of, a, of a close parallel, and uh, the only thing that kept coming to my mind was the Raiders. Now, God's not the Raiders, the football team. But when you hear that the, the, the Oakland Raiders, sorry for those of you that are Raider fans, you get a picture of, you know, not nice, something not nice, at least I do. You know, the, the fans or the craziness and the, you know, the meanness of them. They're just tough and mean and scary, especially back in the late, you know, 70s, early 80s and stuff. You just think of Raiders and it's pregnant with meaning. And maybe you think that of other sports teams that you don't like or something like that. Obviously, the God is the total opposite of that. But the point being is it's just a word that has so much meaning. So when Jesus says that I have manifested your name to them, it's more than just the actual name. There's a lot of teaching in there. Remember Jesus said in, in uh, John 14, 9, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. There's so much more that Jesus has manifested to his disciples. Now let's go back to the text and look at it a little more. Let me read verse 6 again. So he says, I have manifested your name to the men that you gave me out of this world. They were yours and you gave them to me. And look at this. And they have kept your word. So the disciples who he's praying for, number one, he's manifested his name. He's taught them. And secondly, they have kept God's word. Now, it doesn't mean they were perfect in keeping his word. What he's talking about here, because the full revelation of God's word to them has not been revealed yet. They've only kept what Jesus has revealed to them. So they've been obedient to the things that Jesus has taught, him, taught them so far. And in the next verse, he, he explains what exactly they have been obedient to. So let's look at that in verse 7. It says, Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. So they've been obedient in the sense that everything that Jesus has taught them about the Father, and it comes from the Father. So they recognize that all that Jesus has been teaching them actually comes from Yahweh, the Father, God. They recognize that Jesus' teachings are divine. They're not teachings that come from the rabbis that, of their day or the traditions of their day. There is something distinctly different about Jesus' teachings, and they recognize that they're divine, that they actually come from God the Father. 
you remember some of the uh, opposition to Jesus. Whenever he taught, people were amazed at his teaching. They didn't like his teaching. And, they, and one of the reasons that this man teaches with authority that nobody else teaches with, it's different. So much so that the people that didn't like him, they said, this guy teaches as if he's God or he makes himself equal to God. They recognized the things that Jesus said, even if they didn't believe him. They recognized that there was something distinctly different about him. And the disciples, on the positive sense, realized that Jesus had come from God, that everything that he had taught as well had come from God. And look at verse 8 as he continues on. It says, for the words which you gave me, I've given to them. So this is that teaching that he has given them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you have sent me. So they understood again that Jesus came from the father. Because the the opposite was that people were saying, hey, Jesus, you didn't come. You're not divine. We know your mother. We know your father. We know your brothers and sisters in the Gospels. That's constantly said against Jesus is you're not divine. You're human just like us. But the disciples, because of the father revealing his teaching to them, understood that Jesus came from God. And they believed that the father sent Jesus as well. They embraced him as the Messiah. Now, these five points are evidence that they are all believers. And let me just recap them for you. They're not going to come up on the screen, but if you're taking notes, this is, what, this is what identified them as true believers, is that they have been taught by Jesus Christ himself, that they kept the things that Jesus had taught them, that they came to know everything about Jesus that he had taught from the Father. And again, they understood that Jesus came from the Father and that the Father had sent Jesus. They embraced him as the Messiah. So because of these five things, Jesus is praying for them. And the last two, the point that they understand that Jesus comes from the Father, and that the Father sent them, or sent Jesus to them, is really, if you've been studying, if you've been here, and you hear me over and over again mention this verse, and I'm going to do it one more time in John 20, 30 through 31, this understanding, these last two, is exactly why John wrote his gospel. Look at what Scripture says in John 20, verses 30 through 31. It says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So John's saying, hey, there's a lot of things that Jesus did that I did not write here, but these things, these things which are, are not, excuse me, but these have been written so that you may believe. So he's saying the things that I have written and recorded are so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. This is what the disciples did. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Those last two points that I mentioned were the disciples embraced Jesus as Messiah. They believed that he had come from God. This is why John wrote the gospel. So that those people that were reading it afterwards, like you and me, would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God coming from the Father. And believing that, that we would have eternal life in his name. And because of that, Jesus prays for his disciples. So what exactly does Jesus pray for? Going back to our text, let's look at verse, verses 9 through 16, because here we're going to find four things that Jesus prays for specifically. 
that I will point out. Again, Jesus prays specifically for his 11 disciples who the Father has given him. This is not a blanket prayer for everybody in the entire world. He even says that I pray for them, not for the world. Now, we can find application from that as believers, but those who are not believers, these things do not apply to them. So let's look at it. Verse 9, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And verse 10, and all these things are mine, are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, here's his first request, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. So Jesus' specific prayer for his 11 disciples is that God would keep them in your name. So we need to break that down a little bit. What does that mean to keep them in your name? Well, that word keep means to protect or to guard. So Jesus is asking the Father to do exactly what he had been doing, but he's leaving now, and so he wants the Father to keep and protect his 11 disciples because he's no longer going to be in the world and he's no longer going to be able to guard them, to watch over them. So he's asking the Father, protect them, guard them, keep them. That's what it means. And in your name, what does it mean in your name? Remember, as we spoke, as I said a little few minutes ago, that God's name is more than just a title. It's a description of his character, his nature, and his attributes. So it can mean that, hey, God, protect them by the power of your name. If God's name is a strong tower or a shield, then he can protect them. It could also mean uh, to protect them by keeping them close to you. Because this is what Jesus did. Jesus watched over them. He guarded his disciples. And so now that he's leaving, he's entrusting them to the Father to protect them. And then what does the Father do? He sends the Holy Spirit to protect the disciples. So the question is, protect them from what? What do they need to be protected from? Well, what he's talking about here is that they need to be protected from falling away. It's spiritual protection. Jesus, as we'll see in a few moments, is going to send them out to evangelize the world. Eleven men are going to go out and transform the entire world. And they need protection. They also, not only do does he not want them to fall away, but think about that task that's given to them. And all that's going to come up against them. If you read the scriptures, you know what happens to them in the book of Acts. One after another, they're opposed, they're thrown in jail, they're beaten. The apostle Paul eventually is included in that. He's shipwrecked. He's left for dead. He's beaten. He's also praying that they don't give up on their calling. How many times have you felt frustrated and disturbed in the things that God has called you to do and you just you want to quit? It's like, hey, nobody wants to get on board. Nobody wants to take part of this or I'm tired of the opposition. This should be easy. But he's like, no, Lord, guard them, protect them from falling away and for giving up on their calling. I mean, how many of us, if we were the disciples and went through what they went through, might have just given up and said, you know what, I'm going to be a believer, but um, I'm not going to go evangelize that hostile world. 
It would have been easy to just say, I'm a believer, I'm saved, that's good enough. I don't need to do anything else. And sometimes that happens to us even today, right? We just want to give up. We don't want to evangelize. We don't want to witness. We don't want to serve in ministry because it's, it's tough. It's hard. Sometimes there's, you don't get thanked for it. And so you give up. And so here Jesus is saying, Lord, protect them in the power of your name from falling away spiritually and from giving up. Let's go on to verse 13. So that is his, that's his first request. And verse 13, we'll find his second request. He says, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the word, excuse me, these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Jesus wants his 11 disciples to have the joy of the Lord. If you're like me, when you hear these little sayings, what does it mean to have joy in the Lord? What does that I mean? How, what does that look like to have joy in the Lord? Does that mean we're always happy, we're always smiling, and everything's going good? Well, I want you to notice something here in this scripture again. He's saying that I want them to have my joy made full in them. So that's the key. It's the joy that Jesus had. So we have to look at what joy did Jesus have that he's praying for his disciples. I'll tell you what it's not. The joy Jesus experienced wasn't abundance of health, it wasn't abundance of wealth, and it wasn't good fortune. Right? A lot of times we associate joy, our life, when, when everything's going great, when we have money in the bank, we have food in the cupboard, and all of our children and family are protected. And, and, I, and I want all those things for all of us, but that's not what he's talking about here. Because Jesus didn't have those things. And again, that's the key. My joy made full in them. So what was the joy that Jesus had? Well, turn with me to John chapter 15. And I'm going to show you verses, just verses 10 and 11. So turn back probably a page or two in your Bible. And this is the key. So John 15 verses 10 through 11 says this. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. So what was the what was Jesus's joy that he kept the father's commandments and abided in his love? The joy that Jesus found was his in his relationship with the father. It was a joy of obedience. As I obey the, the Father, then I have joy. As I have this intimate relationship with the Father, then I have this joy. And so many times, believers lose the joy of the Lord because they're no longer in the Lord. They've stepped out. Like those kids on my soccer team. Hey, if you stay right here, I promise you the ball's going to come. And all you have to do is stick your foot out, and the ball's going to go in the and the goal, and you're going to have the joy of, not the Lord, but of our soccer team, whatever it is. You get the point. It's like, stay right here. It's coming, I promise. I promise if you just stay here, the ball's going to come through, and you're going to score a goal. And the same thing for us as believers, as you can see the application of our life. The Lord's saying, stay right here where I've set you. Obey me, follow me, walk in my ways, do what I've called you to do, 
and you'll have joy. The problem is, is we want joy right now. We associate joy with wealth, health, and good fortune. And when it doesn't happen, we go out on our own and try to do it ourselves. And we ultimately don't find joy. So Jesus praying, Lord, Father, give these disciples my joy, which means the the intimate relationship that I have with you, let them have, and let them be obedient to your will and doing what you've called them to do. Because again, they're going to go out into all the world. They're going to have a tough time, but they're only going to experience true joy as they follow the the Lord's leading. And his disciples, again, they can share in this experience of this joy by knowing the Father and doing the Father's will. So that was his second prayer. Let's look at the third one in verse 15, going back to our text. Jesus prays that the Father would keep them from the evil one. Look at verse 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world. So don't just take them out of the world, because obviously if we left the world, there would be no more worries as a believer. But Jesus doesn't want him to do that because he has a task for them. He's called them out and set them apart to do a specific thing, which we'll see in a moment. He said, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. And that should be very self-evident. The evil one is Satan. Satan is out to destroy the disciples' faith. To keep them from worshiping God. To keep them from following after God. Right? Satan's described as as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Satan would like nothing better than to crush a believer's hope in the Lord. Worship of the Lord. And destroy you any way he can. It does not matter how he does it. And each and every one of us can attest to the ways that Satan knows how to get to us, right? Some of us, it's with tragedy. He could bring tragedy to our lives, and we stop trusting in the Lord. We stop hoping in the Lord because I'm not healthy, wealthy, and have good fortune. And the opposite can be true. God can, or the Satan could throw all the wealth and health and good fortune, and you no longer need the Lord. So it's, it's different for each and every one of us how Satan would attack us. And so Jesus is praying, Lord, keep them from the evil one. Keep keep the evil one far away from them. Right? Satan can just devastate them, as we'll see in the book of Acts, or as you know in the book of Acts, I should say. He tries to persecute them, but that doesn't work. Obviously, the prayer of Jesus Christ was answered. God kept the 11 disciples faithful to him. And again, we are... The evidence of that. And the last prayer that he asks is in verse 17. Look at verse 17 now. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So this is how you do it. This is how how all these prayers are going to be fulfilled and answered by sanctification. Now that word sanctification just means this to be set apart, or to be holy or consecrated. So all those words in Scripture come from the same root word for sanctification, holiness, uh, being set apart, consecration. But in this instance, what he's talking about, he's setting them apart for a particular use. Again, going back to my soccer team, so each kid has a different skill set, and I set them apart in a different position 
because that's what I believe is the best position for them. I want you to be right here. I want you to stay over here. So when they're all asking me, can I do this? Can I do that? Can I? And say, no, you cannot. You know, you need to be right here. I'm going to set you apart right here, and you need to stay there. And so that's what sanctifying them and their truth means. Is he's saying God set them apart for a particular use. And then he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And this is where it happens. The sanctification process happens in God's word. God's word is what makes them clean. God's word is what sanctifies them, makes them holy. And not only that, it helps them grow up in the Lord. Another definition of sanctification is growing into holiness, the process of being sanctified. And we all go through that on a daily basis as believers. I like what uh, D.A. Carson, a commentator, said about this passage and about sanctification. And he says this. He says, ideally, if someone is set apart for God and God's purposes alone, that person will only do what God wants and hate all that God hates. That is what it means to be holy as God is holy. Do you see that? God set you apart. He set the disciples apart, right? He said, you gave them to me, called them out of the world and given them to me, and now I've invested in them, and now I'm going to send them, send them out. So the 11 disciples have been set apart for a particular task, and Jesus is praying over that. It's God's word that sanctifies them. I'm reminded of uh, Paul when he's talking about marriage and describing it in, to, in relation to the church. Look at Ephesians 5, verse 25 through 27. This is a great verse that illustrates this point. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, he says this. He says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And look at this. So that he might sanctify her. How? Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That's that cleansing process through God's word. It's God's word that cleanses us. And and since it saves us because we've received it. And we believed it. And now God has sanctified us for salvation. And then he's setting us apart for a certain task. And again, you see that in the disciples. I think a good description of sanctification can be found in Leviticus 20, 26. And I'll read this to you. It says this, thus, and this is uh, God speaking to the nation of Israel. He says, thus, you are to be holy to me. So sanctified, set apart to me, holy. For I am holy and I have set you apart from the people to be mine. So he's like, I've called, think of this in the Old Testament, God calls the nation Israel, again, not because they've done anything special, he's just chosen them, and he wants them to be his people to do a certain task. So he set them apart to do something for him. And you see that happening here with the, with the disciples, right? Jesus has called out these 11 men, he's set them apart from everybody else, and he's given them a specific task. And what's that new task? They're going to proclaim the new covenant. Why? Because the nation Israel has failed to do what God has called them to do. So God has 
you see these 11 men representing Israel, the real Israel. Originally, there, you know, there were, 12, there were 12 nations, right, or 12 tribes. So God calls 12 men, I believe, to represent the nation Israel, and they're going to go out and proclaim this new covenant. And you're saying, well, you said one of them's gone. We remember in the book of Acts, the apostles cast lots and get a 12th member. And so they represent Israel in the New Testament. Because Israel failed to proclaim God's word to the nations. So God has moved them aside and he's brought these and he's inaugurating this new covenant with the new Israel. And so that's exactly the reason for this prayer. Look at verse 18. So he's prayed all these things for them. He goes, as you sent me into the world, I. I also have sent them into the world. So this new representation of Israel is going out into the world to proclaim the new covenant of God to be a witness to the rest of the world. That was their role. So that's Jesus' prayer. He's sanctifying these 11 men, setting them apart to do a mission, a task for them. And so he's praying for them so that they will do this completely. So what's the application for us? Do these things apply to us as well? And I would say, yes, we can pull some application from it. And I'm going to just give you four points of application and then we'll close. Because I believe that all four of these prayers that Jesus prayed for his 11 disciples can also be applied to us. And that first one is this, that we too are protected by God's power, meaning our salvation is secure in the Lord. Right? If Jesus has called you out of this world and you have believed on his name, then your salvation is sure. Let me show you this. This is a great verse in the book of Ephesians uh, chapter 1. You could turn there with me or I think it's going to come up. Ephesians 1, look at verse 11 through 14. It says this. <clears throat> it says, also we have... Obtain an inheritance, speaking of salvation, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who are, were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory, in whom you also, after listening to the message of truth, so there's that truth, the word of God, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So like I said, Jesus was praying that God would protect the disciples from the evil one and guard them and, and be there. And I said earlier that God would send his Holy Spirit to do that. And we, too, are recipients of that. If you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, just like it says here, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise until the day of redemption, until the second coming of Christ, you are sealed. That should bring you comfort and great joy. If you believed on the Lord, you are sealed to the day of redemption. And I believe that means you cannot lose your salvation. So like, hey, if I've if I mess up or I fall away from the Lord for a little while, I believe that your salvation is secure. It's like the little kid again, hey, you've been out of position for a while, but you're still on the team. And you've just missed out on some goals and some miss out on something, but guess what? You're still on the team. Now get out there, 
and, and you know, get back up, brush yourself off, and, and get in the game. Because you've already been set apart. So we're protected by God's power for us out until the day of his redemption. Secondly, we too can have the joy of the Lord. Remember, I said the joy of the Lord isn't wealth, health, and good fortune. Again, the key was the joy that Jesus had is the joy that we can have. And that's the joy that we have experienced eternal life by knowing the Father. The joy in doing the Father's will. It's about your salvation. That should bring you great joy. Because no matter what happens in our life and how bad the world gets, you still have salvation. That cannot be taken away. You still have a relationship with God. God is still there for you. He's still your Father. And that joy is complete, and it can never be taken away. I think it's in the book of Romans where it says, Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Remember that? Their depth, their height, you know, all those things. Nothing can separate you from that. God loves you. And that should bring you great joy. Even when we mess up and make mistakes and fall away and backslide for a little bit or, or willfully disobey Him, the joy of the Lord is still there. He's still there as a loving Father to receive you back. Because you're His, He set you apart. And you've believed on Him. Thirdly, we too are protected from the evil one. 2 Thessalonians 3 says, 3, 3 says this, But the Lord is faithful and He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Satan cannot take your salvation away from you. It's similar to the other two. And I like how 1 John chapter 2.14 describes it. Let me read this to you. 1 John chapter 2, verse 14. It says this. I like this. He says, I've written to you fathers. Again, the backdrop is the written word. I've written to you fathers because you know him from the beginning. Excuse me. You know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you young men. I like this. Because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. John prayed it earlier about we've overcome the Lord by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. The word of our testimony is that I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not that I've done all these great things and I can overcome Satan because we can't. It's only because we trust in the Lord that we overcome him. Because he's overcome him and we trust and believe in his word to do that. And lastly... The last part of Jesus' prayer was to sanctify his disciples in truth. Guess what? You and me, as believers, we also are sanctified in his truth. In one sense, we're sanctified to God, meaning, again, set apart to God. If you're a believer, think of that. He's picked you up, and he's set you on his team, so to speak. You're mine. I've set you apart. And I like what, uh, in First Peter... Peter has a lot of good things to say about this. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 23, look at what he says here about this sanctification in God. He says, he says, since you have in obedience to the truth, again, it's sanctification to that truth, so God's word plays an important part in our sanctification. Since you have obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, 
but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. Because of what God's word says, you can be assured that you've been saved. You're sanctified. You're set apart. He's like, I've I've pulled you. I've called you out of the world. You're on your mind. And if you believe that, then this is where you're at, right here. But God doesn't stop there. Again, going back to my soccer team, I don't just want the kids to be on the team. I want them to play a part on the team to help us to be successful. So we, too, as believers, are sanctified, set apart for a mission. God has a purpose for each and every one of us, and he has a purpose for the church collectively. And that can be seen again in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. I read this verse often because it's just, again, it just, just pictures what we're supposed to be. Like who we are, or who we were, and who we are, and what we're supposed to do. It says this, but you, now these are believers, and this is you and me too if you're a believer. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So there's that sanctification. God has chosen you. He's made you a priesthood. He's made you a holy nation and a people for God's own possession. As a believer, that's who you are. Think about that for a little while. You're sanctified, set apart for God to do what? Look at what he says. So that... You may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into the marvelous, into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's continue on. Look at this. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So again, God has called you by his word to be sanctified. He set you apart to proclaim his word, right? He set you apart to do that. But not only that, he's also called you to live a sanctified life, meaning you're supposed to be different than the rest of the world because I've called you out. Again, think of the nation Israel and all the laws that they had in the Old Testament. That was a shadow of how we are to be. He's like, hey, I'm calling you out of the the heathen nations, and you guys do everything different than the rest of the world. And that's why he calls the New Testament church, church strangers and aliens to this world. So in a sense, we don't do what the rest of the world does. We live differently. We're not just set apart to be gods, like, hey, I'm saved and that's it. No, you're saved for a particular use, and you're supposed to live a particular way if you are his. Let's read on. Again, I urge you as aliens and strangers, abstain from flesh, flesh, fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. And look at what he says. Keep your behavior, so this is the way that we live, excellent among the Gentiles, the non-believers. Why? So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. All that is saying is, hey, follow me, be obedient to my word, and even when people slander you, they ultimately can't say anything too bad against you, but they may even see how you live and glorify me in the day of visitation. 
at the second coming. Your life is to be a light to the rest of the world. That's why God chose the nation Israel. And then when they stopped doing it, he called the New Testament believers to be that new Israel, both Jew and Gentile, to proclaim his excellencies and to be a light to the rest of the world. And even if you don't have to say anything, it's just the way that you live. There's something different about you. You're set apart. You're doing what God has called you to do, and God will use that to glorify himself in the day of visitation. Okay, now with that said, let me close with this one last verse, because I like what the Apostle Paul said to the, Ephes- to the Ephesian church as he was leaving. And you can look at this as, hey, hey I'm pastor encouraging you now to take action to what you've heard. And, he, and uh, Luke wrote this account in Acts 20, verse 32. The Apostle Paul said this. He says, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. So again, to God and to the word, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Brothers and sisters, I too commend you to God. Now, let God set you apart for that specific thing that he's called you to do, right? Let him build you up in your faith, grow in your faith. You know, that, that point of sanctification in our lives is we grow stronger because of the word of God. Get into the word of God. Do not neglect, neglect it because this is where we have our, our, you know, our basis for our salvation. We can believe in him. We can believe what he's called us to do and all his promises are true and faithful. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that the prayer of Jesus Christ was recorded and written down for our learning. We thank you for just your faithfulness in completing your mission through the 11 disciples and the Apostle Paul as well, who we are great recipients of this faith because of your enduring word. I pray, Lord God, that every one of us this morning who trust in your name would realize that we've been set apart for your purposes. We were not just saved to sit in a pew and do nothing, but we were set apart to do a specific mission. Now, it's different for each and every one of us, Lord God, but we know just from reading your scripture this morning that we are to be different from the rest of this world and to be obedient to you and let that speak to the rest of this world. So help us, Lord God, in those areas of our life where we struggle in obedience. Help us to be obedient to you. We ask that you would forgive us, Lord God, in those areas where we've been unfaithful, where we have fallen short, where we continue in the same sins over and over again, even after we repent. Help us, Lord God, to trust in your word, trust in your promises, and to grow up in you. I pray, Lord God, for those who are struggling with their faith, who have been attacked by the enemy through sickness, through disease, through finances, and even have been, have been blessed, Lord God, in a way that they might stop forgetting about you. Whatever it is Satan has used to attack them, Lord God, I pray that they would be able to see through that and they would trust in you. Even when they don't understand what's going on, even when it's hard and they begin to doubt you, 
I pray, Lord God, that you would bring to remembrance your word to them. And so I ask that you would help them, Lord God, and keep the evil one far from them. I pray also this morning for those who do not yet know you. I pray, Lord God, that you would soften their hearts and, their, and open their ears, that they might hear what the Spirit says to them, that they might hear your Spirit calling, and they might believe on you, and you would set them apart from the rest of this world, and they would experience your joy. I pray that we would all experience your joy this morning, Lord God, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.